I suspect what's really changed is that the efficacy of the phytases has improved. Their ability to release phosphorus and calcium has improved, and so we're seeing a better release of this these these nutrients from phytic acid. And people are now tending to use a little bit more phytase in the diet than than they were right at the very beginning. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AB Vista, offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. One of AB Vista's core strategies is to give customers the flexibility to do more with less, which is a common theme among many companies and producers in today's industry. As a science-driven company, AB Vista has proven results to help our customers achieve optimal performance using customized programs with our core phytase and xylanase. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Um, today, I am here with Dr. Mike Benford. Um, he's going to talk to us about some of his expertise areas, which are in uh, enzymes and some different uh, nutrition components, such as calcium and phosphorus in poultry diets. Uh, but first, I'd like to take a minute to welcome you to the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, actually, I'm, I'm really quite excited to be on this uh, podcast. I was just looking at... Uh, Sally Knowles and thinking what a cool life she's had and uh, thinking I'd, I can't think that mine's going to be anywhere near as interesting but it's a it's, <laughs> it's a great venue and it's a great medium to actually get to know people yeah yeah I, I really love talking to people and hearing about what they do everybody has some really interesting experiences yeah but so how did you get into chickens to the poultry industry uh, well it's funny actually I wasn't I, I was on holiday when I was a teenager and uh, we were we happened to be fishing, and a farmer came up and said to me, he said, are you guys looking for a job? Literally said that to me. And, uh, of course, we were at the time. We were looking for a summer job, and he gave us a summer job on a farm, which is a mixed farm, included pigs. And uh, I enjoyed it so much, he suggested that I went and did an animal science degree because at the time I was thinking of doing something more veterinary or medical-related. And uh, so I, I chose animal science and got into uh, animal nutrition at university. And then the reason why I went to chickens was actually quite funny as well, because um, in the final year of an undergraduate degree at the University of Nottingham, which is where I went, I, uh, I was given the choice of three different topics. And it was either a, a, a ruminant study or a pink study or a chicken study and everybody wanted ruminants and uh, what you had to do was get back to the university early in the year to select the the, the project you wanted and I, I missed the date by two days and all that was left were chicken projects and I was absolutely gutted absolutely gutted, it wasn't what I wanted at all, I wanted ruminants 
I ended up with Chicken Project, and I actually realized, oh, this is fantastic. It works. I love it. They're, they're great animals to work with. They're intriguing. And uh, yeah, that's what started me on my, my life with chickens. So it was real serendipity. It was not by design or by, by anything to do with my background. My dad was a head teacher, and my mum was a sales manager. So yeah, nothing in the family put me into it. So I bet you never had a start like that. <laughs> no, just having a, a nice stroll along the road and hey you want a job yes i do exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly how it turned out yeah. oh gosh that is awesome um so so can you tell us a little bit about what you're current you're doing your role currently yeah so at the moment i'm uh, the research director at ab vista and uh, we supply enzymes of phytases and xylanases uh, and other enzyme products into the feed market and my role is really to have a look at, at we're just trying to understand better how they work, uh, what makes them fail when they fail, and they do fail. They don't work all the time. Sometimes, you know, they don't deliver what you're hoping they're going to deliver. Understand what those uh, those things are that can make it fail, and also, also understand how to use them better and get the optimum results out of the product. And in doing that, you understand uh, more about the mechanism of how the enzymes are working in the animal. And by understanding the mechanism, it gives you some pointers as to, well, how do we improve on the current products we've got, um, for example. Yeah. And so um, from my understanding of phytases, it's one of the most common enzymes added to poultry diets, but also one of the oldest, correct? I mean, they've been around for a long time. They have. They they um, they actually are predated by xylanases. I mean, my if I go back to where did I start? I I, I did a, a series of degrees in 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 Canada and then finished up doing a postdoc in Canada on on uh, the use of xylanases in rye based diets. And rye is a particularly sticky grain, and it, something was growing in Canada. And xylanases broke down the sticky or viscous material in rye. And as a result, uh, birds could digest that material much more effectively and grew more more uh, quickly and, and more efficiently. Um, and at the same time, the, the enzymes were being developed for barley, beta-glucanases, and that goes back into 1962, um, where people had identified what the problem was with barley. But commercially, they didn't really take off until... Uh, a company in Finland was able to produce large enough quantities of beta-glucanases, which were targeted in barley, and they were cl- they had close ties to the feed industry in Finland, and it enabled them to really upgrade the use of uh, barley in, in chicken rations in particular. And and that was the beginnings of the whole feed enzyme industry. So about 1984, 85 is the first time that they were ever used, not in large quantities, and it took maybe five or six years for that to catch on. <clears throat> I was doing my postdoc in, in Canada in 89, and I moved to the UK in 91, and really was on the crest of the wave that just started pushing uh, beta-glucanases into barley rations and then xylanases into wheat rations, and it was NSPases, or N- fiber-degrading enzymes, which took off first. Phytases were fairly close behind, but they never had the market share, really, until... Um, the price of the phytases dropped to become economically uh, attractive to pull into the diets. But now you're right, phytases and NSPases are, you know, it's probably 50-50 in the marketplace in terms of uh, volume, so the value is being sold. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like you've seen, you've seen 
years and years of use and change of these right. these enzymes and even in what we're using for, for for feedstuffs for the diet just as you know times change yeah. and we go through different byproducts or different grains especially based world you know in the world so can you can you tell us a little bit about maybe historically how they've been used and trends that you've noticed or basically how have we how have we made these enzymes better yeah I, it's, it's really quite the it is an interesting evolution. Um, well, it might be interesting. It depends on what you're interested in or not. But yeah. when we started in the 90s uh, selling enzymes into the, the commercial world, we were lucky in in some respects in that the varieties of barley and wheat, because let's face it, back in that early 1990s, we were not selling enzymes into corn or maize-based diets. And the reason why they were selling so well into barley and to wheat-based diets was because the varieties that were available were really quite sticky. So when birds ate them, the cell wall material dissolved. It was viscous material and it would slow down digestion. But the most notable thing was they had very sticky, wet droppings. And so when you put these enzymes into the diets, you could see straight away you were having an effect. So it was really easy to sell those enzymes at that point in time, not only because the performance was much better, but also because you notice an immediate improvement in, in litter conditions. And as a result, things like uh, hock burns and foot bad dermatitis were you know, almost eliminated. So that was very lucky and very easy. And the, the interesting thing is, if we look at the varieties of barley and wheat that are available today, they're nowhere near as sticky or as viscous. Just breeding has taken those uh, characteristics, not completely out of those grains, but largely out of those grains. And so the if we were trying to start this industry up again today, it would be much more difficult in barley and wheat, for sure. And then, you know, as time went on, we realized that even though maize wasn't viscous, it did respond to xylanases, and we started to realize that we could, uh, with prices of enzymes dropping, you could actually get cost-effective responses in even in maize-based diets. And, and that started our search for, well, how are these working? Because if maize isn't viscous, why would a xylanase, which reduces viscosity in a wheat-based diet, why would it give you a response in maize? And we're still trying to pull that apart today, although we've got a much better idea, obviously. Um, uh, but yeah, so we were lucky when we started, I guess. So have you um, have you seen that the cost of the phytases is going down because the efficacy is so much better or the production is also becoming more efficient? I think it's a combination of many things. Um, the, the phytase market would never have taken off if phytases remained at the prices that they were at when they first came in. When they first came in, they were being used to enable animal production in areas where phosphorus pollution was such that farmers were told if you did not reduce the phosphorus that you were putting on your land, you uh, well, you had to. So the only way they could do that was by reducing animal numbers and dramatically, which would have been catastrophic for the Dutch and Northern German industries. And even though phytases were expensive, it is actually very cost-effective to use these products and enable uh, large, greater numbers of animals to be concentrated in the same area and, and still be, stay below the phosphorus uh, uh, deposition on the land uh, limits. And it, uh, it facilitated uh, basically a very successful animal industry. But the price of the phytase was such that at that time that it wasn't really competing out the alternate phosphate sources in the diet, it's like uh, monocal, dical, D4. And 
But yeah, with competition and with the development of better strains and better enzymes, you're right. What happened was uh, for for a dollar, you were getting far more phosphorus release, which becomes cost competitive. And then we start to see phytases being used worldwide. What do you think the interaction with how the genetics have changed as well in the birds? Do you think the birds themselves are getting better at, at using, you know, non-phytate phosphorus, or is it really driven by the enzyme use? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I my uh, honest answer is I, I don't, I, I can't remember if I've seen any data on old strain birds versus your random bred strains versus modern uh, strains. Uh, I'm not sure that the birds gone any better at using phytate phosphorus, um, but. The bird's requirement for phosphorus and calcium on a daily basis has gone up because they've grown quicker and they're putting bones down quicker. So, you know, the, you've got to deliver the nutrients quickly enough uh, to enable proper bone growth. Um, I I suspect what's really changed is that the efficacy of the phytases has improved. Their ability to release phosphorus and calcium has improved, and so we're seeing uh, better release of this these these nutrients from phytic acid and people are now tending to use a little bit more phytase in the diet than than they were right at the very beginning when you know you don't muck around with phosphorus if you go deficient in phosphorus you you have it right so uh, at the very beginning at the very beginning people were very cautious and they would only be taking out 0.05 0.08 or 0.1 percent of phosphorus um and now people are realizing, well, this stuff works. We can go higher and higher and save a lot of money. So I think, yeah, the efficacy of the fight has changed. I think what else has changed as well is if you look at a typical diet about 15, 20 years ago, there's some really good reviews which we're looking at what are the calcium and the phosphorus levels in those diets. Phosphorus is expensive, so people tend to be quite good at making sure that measured phosphorus level is what you're targeting. Calcium's pretty cheap limestone very cheap and uh if you looked at what you'd actually find in the diet for calcium versus what was actually targeted there's usually quite a bit more and that that makes things more difficult for phytase to work effectively so people were rightfully cautious in what they were giving the phytase nowadays people are beginning to realize that high levels of calcium in the diet are actually detrimental not just to phosphorus digestibility and phytase uh, effects and performance, but also to performance as well. So uh, there is a, uh, quite a significant move to remove that calcium excess that's present in a lot of broiler diets. And it's quite interesting. I was just in um, uh, in Bangkok uh, two weeks ago and was talking to some companies, and they are really low in their calciums now in their starter diets, probably 0.2 or 0.3 lower oh, wow. than they were back in the 90s. Really interesting. Really interesting reductions in calcium levels. Yeah. Yeah. I think because they were oversupplying in the beginning, you know, and, and the beginning to realize that actually if you're feeding for optimum gain, it doesn't necessarily mean optimum tibia ash. Tibia ash is not necessarily tibia function. And, you know, is that bone good enough for the bird? Is the bird in a good welfare status? Is it healthy? Is it not got any problems? Uh, that's fine. You've got a level at which you can deliver that kind of a tibia ash, which is a target of calcium and phosphorus requirement. But if you overfeed calcium and phosphorus, what will happen is they'll just keep on depositing calcium and phosphorus in the bones. So if you want to maximize tibia ash, 
you're actually feeding enough calcium that it depresses growth performance. It's in excess of performance. Think of it a little bit like fat. You know, if you um, if you overfed a broiler back in the nineties, early eighties, they would just put on more fat pad. Uh, you know, so right. you think about the fat. It's the tibia is uh, the the bone is a store of uh, calcium and phosphorus, and if yeah. you're in excess, you may well put a lot lot more down just to have some for a rainy day. And that doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean it's what you need, uh, right? Because you don't need a big fat pad, but uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe you don't need that much calcium and phosphorus <laughs> in the bones as long as you're supplying calcium and phosphorus every day in the diet. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think about optimizing those three? Like, what what are your what are your best practices involving those nutrients? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to you have to use phytases with a proper and careful assessment of what your cal- calcium and phosphorus levels are in the diet, what matrix you're going to apply. And people are, I don't think there's many people who do not apply a calcium matrix when you use an enzyme. In other words, you're reducing both calcium and phosphorus levels when you're using phytase because phytases will release both nutrients. Um, and to some extent, sodium. Sodium is something you've got to keep an eye on as well because there's a sparing effect on sodium, which can have an influence on, on wet litter. So, so among all of the phytases that are in existence, they're all generally working on the same mechanistic pathway, like liberation of the non-phytate phosphorus, and then uh, you know, iron and phosphorus and different chelated micronutrients are coming off. So, are there any, are there are there any things that have changed about the enzymes over time that have made them made them more efficient, just based on like the chemistry? Yeah, I mean, we've evolved phytases to be more effective in working in the, the functional environment of the the, the proentricular gizzard of the, the bird and, and the crop. There's a little bit of phytase activity in the crop, but the majority of it is in the proventricular gizzard, and that provides significant problems. Well, actually, let's start with the diet. The phytases, first off, got to get through the pelleting process. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, so... You've either got to be thermostable or you've got to have some coating effect around yourself to protect it, or you can spray on post-pellet. So they're, they're, they're the ways of around it. Now, if you've coated your phytase, you really need that thing to release quickly. And if it's going to fall, if it's going to function in the proven chickens, is it? So that's the first, first problem you've got to get around. The second problem is once you're in the proventricular schizzard, um, you have an interesting environment, which is low pH. And cyclone pH as well. It's not constant. It can go below one and it can go above four. And the phytose has got to work in all of those situations. And there's, of course, there's pepsin there, which is a protease, which can break down a lot of proteins. And some of the early phytases, in fact, a lot of them, were quite susceptible to pepsin attack. So some of the things that we've evolved and improved on is thermostability, but also pepsin resistance so that the enzyme can stay around longer and do more damage to the phytic acid. And then the, the I suppose, the next component of what makes a better phytose is how well it attacks the, the phytate molecule because phytic acid is, is uh, inositol hexaphosphate. And in order to get all the phosphates off, you've got six phosphates on there. You, you've got to take all six off if you're going to get all the value out of that diet. Uh, all of, uh, and phytases will take the first five off and leave the last one. The last one is taken off by phosphatases in the small intestine. 
but phytoses will take the first five off and, and they vary. These phytoses that were in the market and still are in the market will vary quite significantly, not necessarily on how quick they are going from IP6 and take the first phosphate off to IP5, but they vary in speed of how quickly they'll take IP5 to IP4 and 4 to 3. And oh, two, interesting. 2 to 1. So it's, I always like to say that taking phytic acid down to inositol and 6 phosphate. It's like a marathon. And what we tend to measure when we look at assays in, in the lab is the first phosphate coming off. So you've looked at a marathon, but you've only viewed the first mile. You haven't looked at what's happened for the rest of the race. And so some fighters might be very, very quick in the first or second phosphorus coming off, but really slow down later on. And that's something we're, we're working on and trying to improve in the next generation of fighters is after this one. So something that I've always wondered, just because of how much is going on as the bird is digesting, can something that has been unchelated at the beginning of the gut, so let's say they got phosphate six and five off, can it rechelate by the time it gets to the end? So is there a way that phytases also prohibit that from happening? That's uh, a really good question as well. I mean, it depends. So the interesting thing is phytic acid IP6 is is an incredibly strong chelator for an awful lot of minerals. And it's very strong for things like zinc and iron. Um, it's less powerful for calcium. But because there's so much calcium in the diet, um, it it just by mass average is going to be hitting calciums and binding calcium. So we, we put a calcium matrix on because we know that the phytic acid will bind it. Now, if you take one of those phosphates off and you make IP5, you quite significantly reduce the binding capacity for calcium. And if you take off one or another two, it pretty much won't bind any calcium. So once you get down to IP3, it's not an issue for calcium. Um, and that doesn't matter what pH you're at, because there's another thing that comes into play here. If you're at low pH, then the ability of phytic, phytic acid to bind any mineral is less than if you're at a higher pH. And the reason is because phytic acid becomes even more negatively charged as the pH goes up. And it starts releasing hydrogen ions and more of its phosphate groups become negatively charged. So imagine it's a magnet that's just getting stronger and stronger. And as you take off the phosphate, making IP6 to IP5 to IP4, it doesn't change the fact that when the pH goes up, that IP4 becomes more of a magnet for whatever's available. <clears throat> Now, at very high pHs, very high, um, as you move into the small intestine from the gizzard, the IP3 and IP4, which is quite soluble, and it's not coordinating anything because you've taken off enough phosphates that at the low pH in the, the gizzard, it's not really coordinating anything. It's highly soluble. Most of it is in solution. It will move into the small intestine, and all of a sudden, the pH goes up, and it becomes a bit of a magnet for things like zinc and iron. And when we use very small light amounts of phytase uh, or use amounts like 500 FTUs, which is a common dosage use, what you'll see is you'll reduce the IP6 levels considerably, but you will actually increase IP4 and 3. You push that IP6 down to IP4 and 3. So you're re removing the problem from the calcium's viewpoint, but you haven't removed the problem from zinc or iron's viewpoint. In fact, you might have created a little bit more. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And that's where some of the benefits of superdosing are coming from, is if you think of the lower esters, the IP4 and 3 and 2, as still being potentially problematic, 
then you need to feed enough phytos to get rid of all of that. And and in typical corn soy diet, that's a lot more phytos than we use today. A lot more. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So there seems to kind of be a, a cliff, if you will. <laughs> if you can at least get the first two phosphoruses removed, then you're you're in better shape. <laughs> you're in better shape, but you're not perfect. Yeah, exactly. It's a threshold. It's a threshold for the first problem. And then you've got a second problem, which is what are you going to do about the binding capacity for the lower uh, the lower esters for the other minerals? And then, then you've got another problem is that if you want to create inositol, we haven't talked about that yet. If you want to create inositol, you've got to present the small intestine with IP1 because IP, uh, IP1 is broken down only really by duodenal and jejunal alkaline phosphatases and some acid phosphatases from the bacteria in the gut. And the gut phosphatases are not particularly good at breaking down IP2. In fact, they don't touch them. There is a gut phytates, but that's not particularly good at working under the conditions that we feed the animal, high levels of calcium. So really and truthfully, if we want to see a lot of inositol being released, we have to put a lot of phytase in to make sure most of the IP6 has got all the way down to IP1 before it comes out of the gizzard. And in a recent paper by Ruben Crisaldi has shown that you're still getting responses in inositol levels going up by going to 40,000 units of phytase. And remember, currently oh. we're only at 500, <laughs> so I'm not saying that's economically viable. But, you know, who knows? As you get to that perimeter phytases and we're producing them more effectively, we might see ourselves in 10 years' time at 5,000, 10,000. Certainly, Ruben's work, he did show performance benefits going to 13,000 units of phytase. So. Yeah, that's really cool that they're continuing to do some of that work to understand the upper bounds and some of the other limits, or you know, understand how the enzyme completely works. And it's been around for a while, so heck, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> I know, so that's a really good point. So you would have thought that you know you'd know everything about the stuff by now, but actually, we're only beginning to. I mean, one of the uh, one of the coolest pieces of work that's being done at Arkansas by Sammy Drudy-Start Lab and uh, Alison uh, Truett Ramsey is. Uh, looking at what happens with the inositol as it's released and getting rid of all the phosphorus off the phytate. If you feed super high levels of phytate, you change the way uh, the blood can carry oxygen, and it looks like. And and so in, in, in syndromes like a woody breast, which is partly down to oxygenation of the, the breast tissues, by feeding super high levels of phytates, we change the ability of hemoglobin in blood to release oxygen in deeply oxygenated tissues. And that's because in the chicken, the chemical which enables this release of oxygen from hemoglobin is, is inositol pentaphosphate. So it's IP5. So the, here's the irony. In the, in the gut, you don't want to have IP6, 5, 4, 3, 2, or 1. You want to get it down to inositol. Once inositol is created, it can be absorbed. And once it's in the blood and it gets into the red blood cells, it's rebuilt back up to IP5 where it binds to hemoglobin and then it pushes oxygen off hemoglobin in deeply oxygenated, uh, deeply uh, anoxic tissues and enables them to survive. So we see reductions in woody breasts. And the latest work that uh, Alison Rams has been working on is. is uh, femoral head necrosis and it looks really cool for that it's reducing the problems from that uh, particular issue which again has an oxygenation issue in terms of the growth issues of the, of the bone gosh that is so interesting i well it's always surprising you know with 
the metabolic processes to break things down small enough so they can be actively or passively or, you know, however absorbed, repackaged to go back to make the thing that they were before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does seem bizarre, doesn't it? There's a lot of work to get it down to its initial, but you know, exactly to its, its constituent parts, and then you go and rebuild it all back <laughs> up again. But, it, but it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a different restructuring. It's quite, quite interesting because the IP5 is a different isomer in the blood compared to the IP5 that you'll find in the ah, gut. Yeah. yeah. So I don't want to bore you with the, the chemistry, but basically the, the phytases will not take off the phosphate in the two position, which is quite useful because the phosphate in the two position is quite critical for biological functionality in uh, in, in animals. Yeah. And, and in, yeah. So we build them up. When we say IP5, it's not the same one that you'd find in the gut. As, as a result of phytase activity. Gosh. Well, that, that, that's good because then it could technically be a signaling molecule, right, in the gut with things going on. So maybe, yeah. So maybe we don't want to be doing that in the gut, which is it's good. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when we talk about the complexity of digestion and absorption, even within the um, the context of the phytase, um, what, do, what do you think is going on alongside the phytase when we say that there's more minerals that are are or are not chelated or released with the microbiota. I mean, there's got to be changes, right, with the way we're feeding diets and then the way the microbiota respond, right? Yeah, yeah. It's really complicated. You're right. absolutely right. I mean, I think it's it's the mineral release from the phytate means that it's being they they can be absorbed if you're feeding a high enough level and you're releasing the zinc and you're releasing all the other bit particularly iron and it's being absorbed high up in the gut then it's not available for bacteria down in the back end of the gut the other thing is if you're breaking the phytic acid down and you're breaking it down to the point that there's very little phytate phosphorus left then you have an interesting uh, issue for the microbes in the back end of the gut who are relying on phytic acid as their phosphorus source because they do produce phytate Pigs in particular are very good at producing phytases in the hindgut. And, you know, in pigs, you might see virtually no phytic acid being digested by the terminal ileum, but it's all gone by the time you get to the feces. And it's, it's a phosphorus source. But, but So you're right. If you've used a phytase, you're changing the dynamics of what's available for which sections of the gut. And and the other elements which are interesting for, for phytases, the inositol effect, you know, some of the inositols made available is that, being used by bacteria, I, we don't really, we know, I, I suppose it's a truth well answer the moment. But phytases at very high levels are also improving protein digestion, which is uh, removing amino acids or protein from uh, potential fermentation in the seeker. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Phytase is, is having a significant effect on nutrient supply to the, the distal bacteria for sure. So what do you think about the combination of different xylanases, the beta-gluconases and phytase? So are are we inadvertently altering the microbiome because of what we can offer it <laughs> for food? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, goodness, how you get into complexity, so I don't think anybody really <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think, I think the... Well, I've, I've been trying to simplify what, what the heck are NSPAs is doing, which are of value to the microbiota, because that's really what the question is. And, and really what they're doing is they're taking large insoluble and large soluble fiber fragments, breaking them down and making them into smaller fragments, which are much more fermentable. So it's effectively um, uh, what fiber, fiber degrading enzymes are doing is enabling better fiber digestion. Now, digestion is the wrong word because it's being fermented, right? 
but it's taking they are if they're working well they are taking insoluble fiber making it soluble and they're taking soluble fiber and chopping it up so it's more edible by bacteria and by making it smaller it's more likely to get into the seeker in the first place because the seeker is really good sieve and it won't let large particulates and it won't even let some viscous sticky molecules go in so you know you have to be um, small and it has to be uh, uh, soluble mostly to get into the seeker. So enzymes are fairly good in chickens in that regard. They'll chop it up and put it into the, the seeker. And um, how they interact with phytases? Yeah, I mean phytases are working in a diff- completely different plane, but they're they're changing the as I said the plane of nutrition will go into the seeker as well. So the combination of the two seems to be quite quite effective. In fact, in in Alison Ramsey's work, we were looking at so this is the one with the BCO. There was quite a significant reduction in BCO uh, problems as a result of the combination of effectively a xylanase and a, and a phytase. And it seems like the theory is that the xylanase is improving gut integrity by feeding the bi- bacteria and enabling them to produce the volatile fatty acids, particularly butyrate, which keeps the gut in good condition. So there's less likelihood of translocation of pathogenic bacteria into the bloodstream and onto the, onto the bone. And the phytase was, as I said, was providing the inositol to maintain oxygenation of the of the bone uh, structures, so they didn't get the problem in the first place, or didn't get the injury site in the first place. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of interaction between the two. And then some people, and I'm not sure I believe it, but I think it may well be the case that <clears throat> phytic acid in cereals is enveloped in cell walls, which have uh, made a fiber. If you break fiber down, you you expose more phytic acid to attack by the phytases. So um, that's definitely a possibility as well. Yeah. So um, you know, traditionally or typically, the the value of fiber is low in poultry diets, especially without some of these enzymes that can help um, you know help the bird use and the microbiota use and change the architecture of the gut. So. What do you think about the future or the current potential value of fiber? Like, should we look at fiber differently? Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, you guys in the US are probably, I mean, we always like to say in Europe, well, we banned antibiotics back in 2006, but you've gone even further <laughs> yeah. than we knew antibiotics ever. And, uh, you know, you are actually yeah. in a more stringent situation than we are even. Um, and, and when you take that um, uh, constraint on pathogenic bacterial growth out, then you have to really balance the microbiota so that you've got a balanced microbiota that can keep the pathogens at bay by natural means. And the natural means here means providing the bacteria with a substrate which is carbohydrate in nature rather than protein in nature. And you can reduce the amount of protein going into the seeker by feeding phytases, maybe proteases, and even xylanases will improve uh, protein digestion. So that'll reduce the supply of the bad stuff. But then how do we increase the supply of the good stuff, which is the fiber? Well, fiber-degrading enzymes, as I said, will break up the insoluble fiber, which ordinarily would have gone straight out and gone into the feces, break it up and make it soluble, some of it, not all of it, and chop it up so it's smaller, so it's more digestible and it's more rapidly fermented by bacteria. And that keeps the balance of fermentation firmly on the right-hand side, you know, where you're looking at volatile fatty acids being produced rather than branched-chain fatty acids, which are indicators of amines and polyamines and phenols and what have you, which are all the nasty protein fermentation products. So 
Yeah, fiber fiber is definitely something we've got to look at as being our friend now rather than our foe. But but it is it is interesting to you. I mean, fiber fiber is such a bad word because it makes it sound like it's uh, one thing, right? And and it's so complex. And some fiber is inert, doesn't do anything. Some fiber is definitely an antinutrient. I mean, particularly viscous fibers. And some fiber is your friend, which is the fermentable fiber. So you've got what one name for a complete uh, smorgasbord of effects. Yeah. So uh, there, we can use, or we have used fiber for different types of diets, sometimes as, you know, a filler, if you will, um, or increase fiber to have an effect on the bird, such as, uh, you know, get them to go into a molt or something like that. So, so what do you think, what do you think about increasing fiber just in any of the production diets versus a breeder sort of diet? Like what are the different things to think about? Yeah. I mean, you, you're in an interesting situation with that. So I, I was saying there's an optimal, you know, there's an optimal balance between fiber, fiber fermentation and protein fermentation. The interesting thing is that if we, if we look at our diets here in Europe, uh, which in the UK are wheat-based, there's lots of fiber that we can break up and loads of soluble fiber produced by xylanases and there's, you know, we, we, we don't run, we don't run out. Corn soy, corn soy is completely different kettle of fish because when you look at the soluble fiber in corn, there's very little. And when you look at the effect of xylanases or even, you know, complex fiber degrading enzymes on corn, we tend to release release a lot less soluble and therefore fermentable fiber from corn than you ever would from wheat. So there is an interesting issue here with um, what you, you made a really good point. You know, you put in a lot of fiber for breeders, but that's for a totally different functional effect. It's really got fill and making them, you know, not trying to uh, get rid of hunger bank times. What we're trying to do now is add fiber to broiler diets, but really to present them with a fiber that can be broken down and can be digested probably better than you would with just the fiber in corn. Um, now, it's not to say that there isn't fiber in corn. It's just that it's not particularly susceptible to break down by the enzymes we've got today. And in fact, that's one part of a big research program we've got going at the moment is, well, can we do something about that? Can we actually find enzymes which are much more effective at targeting corn specifically? Because corn is really interesting. The fiber is not the same in wheat or barley or any of the other grains. Sorghum is quite similar to corn. It's really complicated. And because it's complicated, enzymes are simple. They don't like complicated uh, backbones. And unfortunately, corn, which is your favorite uh, cereal, is, is, is very complicated and much more difficult to break up. So, yeah, something for, for the research. I, uh, this this past weekend, there was a beef cattle show in Ames, and my husband and I went because my friends were there with their kids showing it. And um, no matter what species you look at it, that's been fed corn, there are always remnants in their feces. <laughs> so <laughs> corn just seems to be one of those like, incredibly indestructible fiber types. <laughs> like, if it can get through a Roman. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. There's always a bit that gets through, isn't there? It's, it's yeah, just incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and the remarkable thing is that it's it's dependent upon the corn itself, obviously. But individual then, animals, individual birds differ massively as well. So, you know, uh, we can see the same in uh, the feces of broilers. Sometimes you take and we look under a microscope and some birds has completely undigested cells in there. How did that get through? That's Incredible. 
Well, no, corn has always intrigued me that way because it it doesn't matter what the digestive setup is, it, it somehow finds a way to survive. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so uh, in your role at looking at different enzymes and efficacy, um, what are some of the challenges you face with getting people to use the enzyme correctly? Like, what what would you like a nutritionist to know to get a better benefit from using any of these enzymes? It, it's it's really it's really difficult to. I, I would hate to be on the other side of the table. Let me put it that way. Because you know, <laughs> first off, do you believe this guy? You know, that's the first thing that you're thinking. And the second thing is, he's telling me to do something which, if his product doesn't work, I'm going to have some major problems here. Because, oh, you know, right? if you take a little bit of en- energy out of your diet and what will happen, maybe your FCR will drop out a bit, but you're not going to have leg problems and you know, broke eels or whatever, which is what's going to happen if you make a mistake on your, 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 your phosphorus and calcium levels. And so what do we try to do? We try to show them the data that we have, the scale of the, the amount of data that's out there. Also, uh, one other, here's an interesting issue as well. When people go to higher levels of phytase and you're trying to convince them to save even more money by taking more phosphorus and more calcium out, there is a concern that if you are using a phytase and you are trying to get, let's say, 0.2% available phosphorus from your phytase, You've got to be very careful that you've done an analysis of their diets and made sure that there's always plenty of phytate phosphorus there to provide that to when you put your phytase on it. And I never like to see somebody going for 90% phosphorus conversion. So a typical corn soy diet might have 0.24% available phytate phosphorus in it. So if phytase worked and got 100% of that phosphorus off, you would get 0.24% available phosphorus from it. I don't like the idea of somebody coming in and using on that diet phytase and expecting you get 0.225 or 0.23. It's just it's just too dangerous because nothing is that efficient, and there's always going to be some dropouts. You know, it might be that um, for whatever reason, the batch of soy you pulled in for that particular uh, diet had a little bit less phytate phosphorus than you expected, and then all of a sudden, expecting the enzyme to deliver more phosphorus than there is phytate phosphorus in the diet. So the first thing is to really give them the tools and the information they need to understand where the limits should be. And then the second thing is to go through how to make the phytase work effectively. So it's what we've just talked about earlier. So you don't just take a phosphorus matrix. You've got to take the calcium matrix with it because if you don't, a high-calcium diet really degrades the ability of the phytase to work. So you might think you're protecting yourself, but you're not. You're actually making things worse. So measurement of what you've got in your diet and really just looking at the data and, and listening to the individual who's trying to sell you the phytase, that what their, their arguments are. And then, then as everybody does, take take a, a safety margin. Yeah. Ninety percent of people do, and to be honest, if I was on the other side of the table, I'd probably do the same as well. But knowing what I know now, I'd be much more. Um, I instead of taking you know a fifty percent safety margin, I'd be. I nowadays I'd be saying I'd, I'd take ninety percent of what they're saying and put that in in place. But when you start, start with little steps and move on, move upwards. Yeah. I, I understand that. Everyone wants to be cautious to make sure the end product isn't negatively affected. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, well, are there any other things about, um, you know, the enzymes or fibers or phosphorus or calcium that we haven't touched on that you want to mention? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's an interesting and fast evolving industry. Um, I think what we're going to see is tight with time. I think uh, particularly, I think there's going to be a, a couple of interesting developments, certainly in the fiber degrading enzyme side of things. There is a lot more work going on and a lot more understanding and a lot more information coming out with regards to uh, fermentation and what kinds of fibers are fermented. And, you know, some of the interesting things that we, we've we've discovered is that in many respects, <clears throat> what we're doing when we're using enzymes and what we're doing when we feed um, saccharides and the combination we're calling a symbiotic, very, very small amounts of these very small xylosaccharides are all that's needed for a bacteria to pick it up and say, whoa, there's xylanate, there's xylan out there. This is a molecule that's being produced as a result of xylans being broken down, and the bacteria recognize xylosaccharides, and they start producing absolutely bucket loads of their own enzymes to digest fiber. So it's a stimulating molecule. It, it's not digested by the, the, um, the, the bird, it's not absorbed by the bird. It's picked up in incredibly. I mean, we're talking grams per ton is all that's Your needed head? to actually. That's create incredible. Yeah, and that's that is what we're trying to do. Is we're not trying to provide the bacteria with all the feed that they need. We're trying to provide them with the signals to tell them it's out there. Go and digest it. So that yeah. that's one what one interesting area because we we, we do believe there's we we, we don't probably probably today have found these signaling molecules, but there's quite a, a, a mishmash of different shapes and sizes. And I'm sure that somewhere in there is the real signaling molecules, which are much more effective than once we got a moment. So that's something we're working on. And then, uh, yeah, with phytases, I think what we'll probably move to in the next 10 years is the recognition that actually the nutritional benefits that we're getting out of them in terms of the matrix we're applying the secondary to the other benefits we get with respect to, for example, what we just talked about, oxygenation of blood. But there's other factors we're finding on superdosing, which we're not really taking account of right now, not really um, understanding. So, yeah, I'd be interested to see if that's right. I, I mean, when you think about enzymes, you just think, oh, this is the function, this is the output. But then when you start thinking about these complex enzyme or other signaling molecule cocktails, that that is really cool stuff, just letting a bacteria know a substrate is available in, in enough quantity that it convinces itself and its friends that it's got to start making these other enzymes. I think that is like very cool. <laughs> it is, yeah. And actually, I think in many respects, we're fooling them because most bacteria will yeah. put out very small amounts of constitutive xylanases. So the enzyme that produces these little xylanases and is throwing them out into the environment. And the idea is that if there's any xylan around, They'll produce some zos and they should diffuse back and tell the bacteria, yeah, there is. This is worth committing. So what we're doing is basically preempting that and saying there is xylan out there going. And one of the one of the responses as a result of doing this is you if you start to feed these to very young birds, the bacteria in their seeker start to age and start to produce xylanases as much as two weeks earlier than a bird that is not exposed to those molecules. So they're oh, wow. Better, yeah, they're much better trained to jump onto the xylan and produce the volatile fatty acids than untrained ba bacteria. And as a result, you don't get the sort of the, you know, how birds in the sort of 15 to 22 day transition period when everything seems to go wrong, 
Well, if at least if you stabilize the back end of the gut to be ready to digest xylem, then you've got a a, 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 a much more stable microbiota and, and a more robust environment to keep pathogens at bay. Yeah. Yeah, the stuff that we ask birds to do with the shortened growth timeline is just incredible. And with microbiologists, and the more I learn about the bacterial landscape, it's I'm glad I'm not a microbiologist because it's it's so complex. But I I can appreciate working with them because you can only know so much about one field, and then having someone else's expertise to come together for collaboration is incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, and that's actually actually that's one of the points about my job is I've never claimed to be a microbiologist or an expert in microbiology, but I work with some really really good ones. And so, I, I, in many respects, I'm not a I'm I'm a jack of all trades. So, but I know enough in many areas to be dangerous and understand what what is yeah. relevant in one field to the next field. And that's that's been the fun part of the job, and it really has been fun. I mean, you know, if I go back <laughs> to the guy who offered me the job, I, I wish I could go back and thank him because uh, I I'm glad I took the direction I did. Certainly, it's been a lot of fun and really enjoyed it. I still love the job I'm doing right now. Oh, that's exciting. Well, this is this has been really really fun uh, talking to you and learning about these kind of up and coming areas as far as feed additives go. It's time for our famous three. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Eastman. Works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions. From essential vitamins like HYD to next-generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. I'll uh, end our conversation today asking you the three questions that we ask everybody. Um, so my first question is, what is your favorite poultry-related book? Uh, yeah, that's a really, that's a rotten one to throw at me at this point in time, because you're probably <laughs> thinking it's going to be, you know, that. Um, I, I think, uh, I have a granddaughter now, so I would say Chicken Little. It's going to be the one. Oh. And yes. just a great story to talk to her about, yeah. And maybe maybe use it as a means to introduce the next generation of poultry scientists to, you know. Oh, that's great. great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what is your favorite or something you're reading right now that's non-poultry related? Yeah, it's actually just been made into a film. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a man called Otto with uh, Tom Hanks. Yes. Oh, it's brilliant. Yes. It's- just such a cantankerous speller and and honestly when I sat there I my wife read it and she handed it to me and she said I want you to tell me what you think of this book and I read it and she I said back to her I said you think that's me don't you <laughs> and it's funny there's a lot of me in that individual there's a lot of that individual in me but I just thought that whole show was fantastic I really did it's just uh the it, it, difficulty that individual had in 
in really expressing things and, and correctly. I don't think I'm that bad myself, but I do see an awful lot of it in the, you know, in the way the way I interact. Yeah. Oh, I I had a colleague recommend that to me, and I found out there are two different versions. There was one I can't remember if it was made in Sweden or the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty sure I found it on uh, Amazon Prime or Netflix, and I watched that version first um, before the Tom Hank ones. But oh no! They're just they're slight they're slightly different. They're I mean it's amazing. They're both based on the same story, so it's so interesting how two different filmmakers. Kind of took liberties, but it's a great story. Yeah, I, yeah, I love yeah. it. <laughs> I think the thing that struck me as well, when we first went in to watch it, I think it's like two and a, a two hours and 20 minutes. It's a long movie. Yeah, it's but long. We, yep. Yeah, but when we came out, we realized, gosh, that's gone quickly. So, yeah, it's really well done. I've always, like, I've always liked Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah, great. It's it's because you're on this like roller coaster of being really happy for him and then being really sad and then yeah, going back right. to being happy and then going... <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's quite an effective movie. It really was very good indeed. Yeah, it, it was. It was. Yeah, well done. Um. So, so my final question for you today, and you've kind of been answering this as you go. Um. But how you had advice for somebody entering the poultry industry? How how can you be successful, or what sets people who are successful apart from those who are not? I think it's being able to. Do you know, it's it's important to relate to people as it is to the knowledge. And, and it's being able to understand and communicate complex ideas to all walks of life and, 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 and recognize that you can really learn from everybody. There's nobody I've talked to. I mean, I go out and talk to uh, nutritionists in Asia and in, in Europe and North and South America. And you can be talking about the same topic, but you could learn so much from each of those individuals because they've got a totally different perspective on what you're talking about and they bring information back to you which enables you to be more effective in your own job so yeah i would say it's it's down to communication it's down to meeting people and it's down to being um not being afraid of of going into disciplines which scare you like microbiology is the one you made but i was absolutely frightened silly with that and uh, now I met some good microbiologists, some of them out best friends, and I realized, you know, that was a good move, a really good move. And I had a job. When I was at university, before I got the chicken project, there were two things I, I hated most were digestive physiology and statistics. Oh. <laughs> uh, what happened? Yeah. You, just you made all... a PhD out of it. I know. <laughs> I know, I know exactly. And it, it just shows you that sometimes things you think you don't like, you don't like because you didn't understand them. And it's only when you get to understand them that you realize, actually, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. I'm right there with you. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was really a treat. I, I've learned a ton from you and it, it was really exciting to be able to talk to you <laughs> that's great well that was really good fun as well for me and thanks very much for tapping that up for this yeah. it's been really good for me you are welcome thank you okay talk to you later bye bye